ideas on faith, life, and leadership by having conversations with those who know stuff to help simplify things for the rest of us. Well, welcome to episode number 29 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I'm the host, and I hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. You know, there are times when I would drive through a town in the Midwest and see churches on nearly every corner, and yet I would know from experience that not many of these churches uh, were thriving. A lot of them were struggling to reach the communities that they were in. And then recently I moved back to the Pacific Northwest, uh, where by the looks of it, there were more pot shops than churches, which can make um, the most chipper of us uh, feel a little pessimistic. But today the guest with me uh, is John King. John is a ministry coach with Final Command Ministries that are focused on helping to train and equip Christians to catalyze disciple-making movements. In our time together, John shares with us his own experience, how he got associated with disciple-making movements, and what God has been doing globally, and what he believes could happen here in America for those who are willing to take the challenge. So let's jump into my conversation with John. Well, I'm really excited to have John King on our podcast. John, welcome. It's good to be with you, Scholar. I appreciate the invitation very much. Well, John, I kind of uh, got associated um, with you um, through some of your um, maybe colleagues in a, in a very similar ministry uh, format. But, John, um, can you share a little bit about your who you are, um, You know what you do, and what kind of piqued your interest on the topic of um, disciple-making? My mother left our family when I was about seven. My dad moved us in with his folks. And my grandfather, who helped rear me, was a preacher in the Churches of Christ. And so his influence shaped me in some very, very significant ways. I uh, went to a small Bible college, uh, majored in Bible, graduated and, and started working in pastoral ministry uh, with a small church, uh, the adjoining county to where I live now, and met my wife through our time there there were four small churches, none of us big enough to have a youth group. And so we started getting our youth together two Sunday nights a, a month. And my wife had just graduated from high school and that's how we met and started dating. Uh, I was single at the time. We moved uh, to Maryland, just outside of DC and okay. worked with a church there for almost seven years and then moved back to Tennessee and I was the preaching minister for Stones River Church of Christ. In 2011, I transitioned out of pastoral ministry and began working with Final Command Ministries, a, a small mission-sending organization uh, that's focused on catalyzing disciple-making movements. Okay. And since that time, I, I've had connections to do training in Asia, Europe, wow. Africa, North America, none in, in South America or Australia yet, but taken me to about 20 nations 
And uh, just, I really couldn't have imagined. I anticipated about this time, I'd probably be thinking about retiring from pastoral ministry, but God had other plans. In 2003, I was invited to a fundraising dinner for Final Command, had not heard of it. Okay. Uh, but a, a couple that was attending the church where I was preaching, the husband's an accountant, and he was on the board of directors, and they were hosting a table, so they invited us to come. To be honest, I didn't want to go. I'm a pretty strong introvert. The idea of being in a room of 200 <laughs> yep, yep. strangers who are wanting my money wasn't my idea of a great way to spend an evening. But thankfully, just couldn't come up with a good excuse to say no. We love the couple. We went and God altered my future. Well, then Jerry Trousdale, who was then the president of Final Command, took the stage and shared he was going to be taking a group to Sierra Leone in West Africa to pray that God would do the same kind of breakthrough wow. there. And I had this overwhelming urge. I'm convinced it was from the Lord that I need to go on this trip. Oddly enough, I'd never had any desire to go to Africa uh, couldn't have identified where Sierra Leone was on a map of Africa. I knew it was in West Africa, but only because of things that were said that evening. And uh, my test for whether this really was from the Lord was Deborah. My wife is uh, trained as a bookkeeper and works in that field and has for years. She manages our finances. And I thought, if this is from God, then when I let Deborah know I want to go to Africa on that trip, I'll receive a favorable response. And the first words out of her mouth is, we'll find a way to make it happen. Wow. And so uh, that, was, that was shocking. A trip to Sierra Leone is what altered the trajectory of my life's ministry. And so uh, that, was, that was in 2000. Three, I went in 2004, fell in love with the people there. Uh, David Watson did a, the first training in West Africa the following February oh, wow. uh, of, of 2005. And he did an assessment of inductive Bible study skills and felt like there needed to be some additional training. And because of some teaching I did, I was asked to come do that training later in 2005. And that's really how God drew me into uh, disciple-making movements. Thinking and training is going back to Sierra Leone to do that training in simple inductive Bible studies. And um, it, it just opened up a whole new vista of ministry that began to focus on what would simple Bible studies hmm. that could be easily replicated look like first in Africa? And then people began to ask if it can happen there, why not here? What would it look like here? And that's, that's what my work has been focused on. Now you go from <clears throat> uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee uh, to Africa 
what like what was I guess some of the biggest differences in your mind when you when you looked at kind of your church context in Murfreesboro to um, in Africa? There was a haunting statement that popped into my mind. They do so much with so little, and we do so little with so much. It haunted me in a good way. It challenged me. It rebuked me. It challenged me. Uh, Sierra Leone had had a about a 13-year civil war, connected with a group of about 10 to 15 small indigenous African churches. And I was incredibly impressed with their fellowship, with their focus on scripture, Mm. with their openness to God, and with uh, the key leader there, Shadanke Johnson, who has spoken at a number of of the events that likely through Bobby Harrington and these others that you mentioned earlier, uh, you've probably heard some of his sessions and others likely have. Well, it was early days of connecting with Shadake. And it was actually through Final Command that Bobby first learned of, of Shadake and began to involve him in Renew and discipleship.org kinds of events. But it, it was also there that we had this incredible learning experience in the importance of praying and fasting for breakthrough. So you were in Africa, you came back, and this is through the ministry of Final Command. Uh, a few years later, give or take, you get more involved and you step into Final Command and uh, in, into the ministry to kind of give yourself um, to it. Kind of what is the big picture goal of this ministry? Final Command is focused on catalyzing movements. Uh, We partner with uh, 66 different partners in Africa. Oh, wow. Okay. In our efforts to get uh, movements, uh, we've recently done a significant uh, statistical analysis and we're tracking 11 movements that are at least 100 churches deep or a total of 1,000 new believers who've come to faith through that effort to catalyze movements. That's, that's across the Sahel, the, the region just into or just below the Sahara Desert. Okay. Can you explain what a little bit about what what is it what is a disciple making movement and um, you know ultimately what does that look like? The two definitions for disciple making are sort of the it's got to be big enough and fast enough the, the the replication that we recognize it's not produced by human efforts. This is a move of God, and so when we talk about disciple-making movements from our perspective, it's it's something that God's called people into and it's happening fast enough and in enough places and at a deep enough level that we acknowledge this isn't pure human effort. You, you don't get there by flesh. The two numbers, and they're somewhat arbitrary, but they're, they're a part of our goals and our targets is ideally there would be at least a hundred new churches planted. <laughs> wow. Um, and in some of the African areas, they may be small, 10 to 15 people because of persecution. In other areas, they may be 35, 40, 50 to 100. 
um, where persecution isn't so much. Uh, what, what tends to happen in the persecution type areas and, and a lot of where we are, that's the case, is uh, that the gospel is planted into a household, uh, a group of family friends who begin a discovery Bible study and through that process are coached to discover the God of the Bible. Uh, they would usually be taken from, through a, a set of scriptures that would sort of go from creation to the cross. And faith develops in that process. And as uh, that family reaches that level together, uh, they're baptized, and then we begin to coach them in the process of being this emerging church. Uh, the beautiful thing is a lot of the same structures that help them to come to faith are useful in helping them to move into maturity and, and be replicating. And so in, in the persecution type areas, a lot of those discovery Bible studies become small, simple churches. In areas where there's not persecution, multiple discovery groups may start in the same village, and they might merge to form a bit larger church, uh, but they would likely stay separate in a persecution area okay. uh, for the sake of safety, uh, the leaders would periodically get together for training and coaching and encouragement and be aware of each other. Uh, but there, there are areas where it wouldn't be safe for those groups to get together all at the same time because of the attention that it would, unfavorable attention, it would likely attract. And so, you know, there are areas, it, it's much like what we've heard about, read about, you know, known of China with the underground church where uh, smaller, more decentralized, able to spread. One of the analogies we use from time to time to help people get their brains wrapped around it is the difference between elephant churches hmm. and rabbit churches. Uh, elephants are large, powerful, but they're very slow to replicate. Uh, there have never been any cases of multiple live births of, of elephants. You, you get one elephant and you don't get one until you've got two mature elephants and they don't reach sexual maturity until they're at least 18 years old. So the replication cycle for elephants is very slow. Rabbits, on the other hand, are almost continuously fertile and they replicate. And so um, we try to help people focus on intentionally planting rabbit churches, lots of them in lots of places. Love the image there. So, so that you get this multi-generational replication potential. There are a lot of people who can be coached and tra trained and then coached to start small, simple house churches who will never be able to, they, they just don't have the gifting, they don't have the, the time, the, the, the capacity to lead a large uh, mega church. You know, they're, they're, 
a lot of mega churches struggle with a, you know, a, a good, strong, healthy plan for replacing mm. those founding pastors when that time of, of transition uh, needs to take place or when it's suddenly forced upon them. Mm-hmm. So it's a different model. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that coaching is, is so important. But a hundred churches uh, in, in some other areas, the the threshold would be at least a thousand new believers within the movement. And sometimes that's helpful in areas where the church numbers may be a bit larger. Uh, and they have the capacity. Uh, it, it's not that we're against buildings. If, if a local indigenous church grows to the size that they want, feel like it'll be beneficial, it's not going to be detrimental to have a building, then we, we'll, you know, encourage them. We're, we're not going to help fund that. That's, that's not a, a necessary part of what we envision. So a lot of the trees in Africa will meet under a, a lot of the churches in Africa will meet under trees, yeah. literally. Uh, and uh, different cultures, different climates, those kinds of things. So it's it's one of the areas when you begin to translate what's happening in Africa back here to North America, that sometimes we struggle uh, here in the U.S. A lot of unchurched people have a church kind of climate that they live in and and they would question the legitimacy of whether a house house church group would truly be a, a church or not because of this connection to buildings and uh, full-time supported staff people and programs and those types of yeah. things. Yeah. And yet with some of our cultural shift here in North America, we're finding People who are resistant to going to a brick and mortar church may be more open to a smaller, simple church Mm, because it doesn't carry the same trappings that maybe they've experienced some wounding from. And uh, we, we believe the time is rapidly approaching that there will be breakthroughs here in the U.S. and Canada, and and I'm coaching a number of people in, in both nations uh, who are actively looking for persons of peace, uh, which is a phrase we use of how we ideally would start one of those discovery Bible studies. Yeah, yeah. Man, there's so much there, John, that you mentioned that I want to um, um, just have you unpack, you know, like, what does it look like in America and, and all that? Um, I want to, I want to uh, go back and you mentioned the person of peace, you know, there's, there's places around the globe where you see these exponential gr- movements of disciple making and growth that are just, um, as an American, we're just not seeing things like that. And so it's, it's, um, uh, it's really neat. It's really fascinating and really cool to, um, to, to see God working in, in places like Africa where um, tons of people are becoming uh, followers of Jesus and, and, and China. And 
from what I'm aware of, part of what's a tool that's being used to help, um, uh, I guess, ride the wave of what God's been doing is something, you know, it's discovery groups, DBS, discovery Bible study. Um, can you explain, you know, what is this and, you know, like, where did it come from? Um, it, you know, is there an origin story? And, you know, what is it specifically that makes this so successful? When I was asked to go to Sierra Leone, go back and do this simple inductive Bible study training, David's experience in Northern India led him to recognize that families, households, and strong community, communal type uh, people groups, which is a lot of the unreached and especially the unengaged people groups mm -hmm. that, that don't have a, a ready Jesus option yet, uh, many of those people groups are much more communal, much more community focused. And a lot of our traditional evangelistic missionary strategies are extractional. Uh, we come from in the global north, the U.S., uh, Canada, and Europe, a lot of Europe. We have a highly individualistic cultures. Mm -hmm. and, and so we think and talk and, uh, about reaching individuals. One-on-one -on -one Bible studies uh, is, is, is the norm for us. And it's sort of the gold standard. Well, in highly communal people groups, they view our efforts to separate off one person and reach them to bring change much like we viewed, uh, you know, back in the, the 90s, there was a lot of fear among the evangelical world of groups like the Moonies uh, kidnapping and brainwashing our young people who've gone off to college or who are traveling somewhere. Muslim highly communal groups view extraction evangelism that same way. Oh, interesting. Uh, it, it carries that same kind of emotional baggage. And so they're convinced we've kidnapped and brainwashed any individual we would reach as an individual. If we'll approach it in a different way, there are whole families hmm. who will come to faith together. And so you don't have that extracting one. Uh, but it takes a different mechanism to reach a family than it does to reach an individual. Right. And, and so the discovery Bible studies are a process of using simple reproduced over and over and over again, just the same questions being used with a family or a friendship group instead of with an individual, so that the whole family goes on this journey of hearing from God and becoming open to applying it through acts of obedience in their daily lives. And uh, so we train people to, there are five responses to this move of God that we want to train people in. Fasting and praying asking God to connect you with 
a person of peace, with a household, with a friendship group, like we're talking about. A lot of people, when they hear fasting and praying in the DMM world, they, they immediately shift into, well, we've got to be praying more. We've got to be praying longer. I would say we probably need more focus on, we've, we've got to be praying different prayers, and I would call them better prayers. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, they're prayers for connection to people who are already, the Spirit of God is already working in their heart to create a spiritual hunger, a, a spiritual need. People who are looking for something for their lives, for their family, for their friendship group. We, we want to be connected with people like that. And so we uh, fast. Wednesday is our, at final command, our traditional day for fasting. We, we fast Tuesday night into Wednesday evening. So this evening we'll break our fast. Uh, but we have a time of, of focused prayer this morning. I was on a Zoom call with the team for an hour of focused prayer for these global movements for breakthrough here in, in North America. Uh, and, and a special part of that is we'll, we'll connect with the right people, with people where if God's already working in their hearts, it's, it's much easier for us than if we're trying to break hard ground that, that's not even open to these things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the second thing, you know, fasting and praying, the second thing is initiating overt spiritual conversations with people where we live, in our neighborhoods, where we work, where we play. And then when we go out for compassion ministries or other types of connecting, intentionally focused connecting, we want to design those ways of serving so that they create this space and time for those overt spiritual conversations. Mm. Now, not everybody you interact with wants to talk about spiritual things. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Uh, we don't want to become obnoxious with that, but we want to do it often enough that if they are responsive, if, if there's a spiritual itch in their heart, yeah. we become aware of it because that's an indicator there may be an opening here. And, and one of the gauges of whether it's the kind of opening that might result in breakthrough is are they willing, once we begin to, to deepen that spiritual relationship with them, to invite their family, their friends, to a discovery study that they would host? See, this is where some of those ministry differences, paradigm differences, are, are significant. And they seem so small, but they're huge. We're accustomed in our extractional efforts, in our evangelistic, traditional evangelistic efforts, that we're going to be the host at our building or at our home. Yeah. And it's not that we're oppositional to that, but when, when the lost person hosts a discovery study with their family and friends, we know they're at a very significantly different place 
and they're a prime candidate to becoming a disciple maker. They'll, they'll be on the journey to becoming a disciple, but because they're reaching out, because they're inviting, because they're including their family, they're already discipling as it were. But in the larger evangelical world, you have evangelism and then discipleship. Yeah, yeah. And because of that divide, many don't even recognize, but they believe you cannot disciple lost people. Oh, you can yeah, only disciple saved people. And so discipleship is what happens after conversion. But one of the things that's happened through, for me in these last, uh, even though I started working with Final Command in 2011, I started on this journey with Final Command back in 2003. And so for from 2003 to 2011, I had a seven to eight year period where I was still in full-time pastoral ministry, but was beginning to do some of these trainings and simple Bible studies, was learning the critical principles, critical elements of disciple-making movements, and was living in these two worlds <laughs> with two very different mindsets, uh, to, to, you know, we use words a lot of times with very different understandings and disciple making discipleship Th those are interesting words and, and to really know that you're talking the same language sometimes you've got to sort of settle down and say would you define this word for me yeah. how you're using it and personally I, I don't like the word discipleship one big reason is it's not definable when I was in school and a lot of my training, if you cannot define a word without using another form of the word, then you shouldn't even use the word. But the final command in Matthew's gospel is the Great Commission. And that's where our organization's name came from. Claude King, uh, our now president, uh, co-author of Experiencing God, wrote a book where he referenced the Great Commission as Jesus' final command. Mm. And, you know, unpack the idea that your final words usually carry a lot more weight, even in a court of law. And so we need to be placing more emphasis on the Great Commission. And uh, that shapes, but in, in the Great Commission, uh, Jesus says, you know, he's got one command make disciples and then he's got these phrases that unpack i'm convinced what that entails yeah, you yeah. go so it, there's there as you're going some translations and that's a legitimate translation so in your where you live work and play are you do you have your uh mind tuned to making disciples. Mm -hmm. I, I'm on mission with Jesus, making disciples as I'm going. And then other translations go with their, their times of intentionally going with the purpose of trying to find people that we can make disciples out of. Make disciples, baptizing them, 
teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So if, if baptizing people is a part of this, uh, then, you know, there, there's this leading them to this place of, of mm. baptism and then teaching them to obey Jesus commands is where the real focus in Matthew's gospel is. Uh, I, I won't go too far with it, but interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 10, Jesus sends the 12 out on that limited commission. And he involves them in two of the three parts of his ministry. He, he was preaching, teaching, and healing. And he sends them out preaching, proclaiming the kingdom, yeah. and healing the sick, uh, casting out demons. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the only teacher. Hmm. And it's the one that carries that where he, he you know, says, call no man teacher. Uh, yet you have only one teacher. And the first and only place where the 12, and at this point it's actually 11 because Judas has, has hanged himself, the only place where he gives teaching to those we would call apostles is there in the Great Commission. Oh, interesting. And even it's qualified. What we are to teach those we're disciple-making is to obey Jesus' commands. Hmm. Uh, now, teaching is involved in Mark and Luke and John, so I'm not saying it's, it's an illegitimate task for us, but Matthew does something incredibly interesting in his gospel with this issue of teaching. Yeah. Jesus is the singular teacher in disciple making and us under him, what we're called to do is to teach others to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And so this one of the ways in Matthew's gospel that you get the preeminence of Jesus clearly rolled out. And we believe that there's a special place and purpose for that. And a lot of what Jesus models is discovery. Hmm. He tells parables. There are times his disciples are troubled by, you know, why don't you make it clearer? And, you know, there's something about us wrestling yeah, yeah. with the words of Jesus, uh, with us being intrigued by them, with us having to analyze and discover uh, that a lot of our traditional teaching is uh, deductive. Uh, we've done all of the, the digging and study and so we're going to give other people the shortcut. We're, we're going to give them the answers we've arrived at. And we want them to believe that on the basis of uh, their, their trust in us. Yeah. With inductive study, the difference is we want to involve more and more people in that process of digging and exploring and raising questions and responding to questions 
And so the Discovery Bible Study is an intentional effort uh, to use simple questions that guide ordinary people into their own handling of Scripture. Uh, and so we have eight questions that we train. Four of those are more relational group dynamic, and then four are focused on the passage. And that that part with the passage, <clears throat> the passages, we, we coach people to read it at least twice within the family group or friendship group. Uh, here in the U.S., we would recommend using a couple of different translations uh, in that reading. And then someone in the group retells it from memory uh, as a way of, and it, it's not it's it's not that we're looking for them to get it perfect. What we want them to recognize is the whole group can retell it better than any one of us. So we 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 recognize that as a group we've got a good we've got a better memory. And then we ask the question: What do you learn about God from this passage? And so we're focusing on Him. He's the initiator. That question is followed with what do we learn about people from this passage? And so we're seeing ourselves in this Bible story, in this passage, through the other characters who are there. And then we ask the question, how can you put this into practice? How will you obey it? And we coach people to start their answer with the two words, I will. Yeah. And we want them to, to come up with a specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-bound, a smart I will statement. So that next week when we meet, if we're meeting on a weekly rhythm, which is typical, other people can ask us, how did it go, Skylar? Last week you said you were going to do X, Y, Z. How did it go? And we we can we have that built-in accountability. So one of the big differences between discovery Bible studies and a lot of our traditional small group Bible studies is there is an intentional call to obedience. Mm and a mechanism for mutual accountability to that obedience. So what do you learn about God? What do you learn about people? How will you obey it? Since the Great Commission, the final command, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Okay, if they're looking at God's word and they're discovering commands from Jesus, how are we going to obey this is a very legitimate question for us to ask and answer. And then uh, the fourth question related to the passage is, who do you know that you can share this with that you anticipate it will be meaningful or valuable for them? And so that accountability question, which is number three in our eight, that would be asked the next week, not only ask about our I will statement, yeah. it also ask how did your efforts to share it with Sally, your sister, or Bob, your coworker, or whoever it is, uh, 
how, how did it go? And, and it's not that we expect everyone uh, to obey perfectly or to always follow through, but we're wanting this process to coach them toward those two applications yeah, yeah. of God's word to their life and to their community. And the people who do that, who share, are most likely to find the next person of peace for a second generation group. Mm. Okay. So okay. This seventh question in our eight is in a simple way, coaching people toward outreach, coaching them toward gossiping the gospel wherever <laughs> they go. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're looking for people that that starts happening uh, because those are the relational. That's the Andrew who goes to Peter, connects Jesus to Nathaniel. And so yeah. it won't happen with everyone, but it does happen with some. And we want to invest more time with them because when you look at the gospels, Jesus strategically focuses on raising up disciple makers as the way to change the world. He preaches to thousands at time, but his real focus is on those 12 that he's called into relationship. And then in Luke 10, where the phrase person of peace is raised, he sends out the 72 others. Until we get to Luke 10, we don't even know there are 72 others. Uh, We know there are more than the 12 because he selects the 12 out of his disciples. But it's possible the 72 others in Luke 10 are the fruit of him sending the 12 out in Luke 9. But that's a fascinating passage. It uses this phrase, um, a man of peace. And the, the word translated man there is the generic. It could be male or female. And so we've uh, retranslated it as a person of peace. Sure. Uh, we know in, in John 4, for example, the woman at the well is the person of peace who, because of this divine encounter with Jesus at the well, she goes into the village and starts a ruckus and brings a whole group of people out to meet this man who may be the Messiah. Uh, and you know they because of her testimony initially invite Jesus to spend a few days with them and then as he's leaving they say it started because of her but now because we've heard for ourselves we 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 believe there there's this trust so she becomes that gossiper of the gospel uh Lydia yeah Lydia connects Paul and Silas to her household the, the remarkable thing, once you start this down this road of households reaching communities that already exist, you begin to realize in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, most of the conversion accounts involve not one individual, mm. but a household. It's yeah. Cornelius and his household. It's Lydia and her household. It's these, these different communities of people in strong relationship. And so movements, multi-generational movements come out of finding 
those households of peace, those families where God, his Holy Spirit, and his sovereign grace begins to stir the heart of a, of a key person in the family. If we'll use the proper approach, the whole family can be reached, not just an individual. But because our culture is so individualistic, yeah. we assume that'll only work in Africa, it'll only work in China, it'll only work in, in other parts of Asia or in South America. It will work here. Even though our family units are smaller, even though we do some things as individuals, uh, the reality is really important, significant decisions you're not going to make mm. without talking with your wife. Yeah. You know, young people aren't going to make without talking with their parents. And, and so we have to be strategically approaching things from a different perspective. But we've done what we've done so long that yeah. we, we switch into it without even realizing that's what we're doing. And so what we're calling U.S., Canadian, European, African, wherever there are existing churches, what we're calling believers to do is go back and learn the Jesus style of disciple making from the Gospels. And Matthew 10 with the 12 and Luke 10 with the 72 uh, have become very critical texts mm, okay. for the disciple making movement kind of world. And we believe they're legitimately placed in that role because it's where we get to see most clearly the strategic, practical training and coaching Jesus does with the 12 and with the 72. You know, and, and, and uh, for those, for those listening um, with the, the discovery group, it is, I, it's, it's pretty remarkable when you kind of get into some of the, um, uh, some of the, the details of what God's been doing um, through something. In, I mean, it's, I mean, you, you hear the questions and, and you think, oh man, that's a lot to memorize, but you actually, you get into it and you know, kind of develop a habit. You go, oh, this is really simple. It's almost like, you know, you, you wake up, you eat breakfast, you put on, you know, you put on your clothes, take a shower. It becomes almost the air you breathe. It's really, really simple. Um, you know, you do it a couple of times and you practically have the whole thing memorized. Um, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. It's, it's, it's really incredible to see the things that God is doing um, through um, your guys' ministry and through something so simple as a discovery um, discovery group and, and all of that. And um, I would encourage everybody to go check it out um, and kind of um, work this into your own routine, your own family, and, and uh, see what God is willing to do and maybe even connect with um, Final Command and um, maybe see about some coaching and kind of some guidance in that. Um, John, if somebody wanted to kind of take this one step further, um, this is the first time they've heard about discovery groups. They're interested, um, and they would like to figure out how they can implement this, or maybe just learn a little bit more. 
Um, do you have a couple of resources you can point them to? I would encourage them to go to the Final Command website. It's just the two words written together, finalcommand.com. And I will receive their, their forms in there that they could fill out for coaching or resources. And I will receive those and will respond to it. Or if they want to email me, uh, the easiest email would be john.kenneth, and it's J-O-H-N dot K-E-N-N-E-T-H dot King, K-I-N-G, at gmail.com. And uh, they can email me directly, and I'll be happy to be responsive. And as a global coach, my responsibility is to help coach people get started and move on to multiple layers of multiplication. A, a lot of people have already been exposed to discovery Bible studies yeah. and some get frustrated because it doesn't automatically become what they think it ought to be. It doesn't uh, automatically replicate. And, and that's the reason early on I, in, in our conversation, I emphasize the importance of coaching. Uh, the, the discovery Bible study itself is fairly simple. Getting second and third generation replication. Uh, a lot of times those of us who, who started those first groups don't realize it, but we get in our own way mm. and we need some paradigm shifts. We need some change in our thinking. So we will embrace multiplication instead of falling back to addition practices. Yeah. And, and so I'd be happy to uh, help in any way that I can. Very cool. John, this has been so rich. Um, the whole discovery Bible study is something that's piqued my interest. And so really excited to um, have the chance to talk with you. So John, I want to say thank you so much. Um, those listening, please go check out Final Command. Email John. Get involved. Um, see what God would be willing. See, be willing to see what God would do through you where you live. And uh, uh, man, may God may God continue to to work in in America as, as well as all over the globe. And uh, John, thank you so much for your commitment uh, to the Great Commission, and thank you so much for your willingness to uh, to talk with us and share a little bit about your ministry. Thank you, Scholar, very much. This is a very exciting picture of ministry that just lifts up my mood. I am excited to see what God does through the simple tools like discovery groups. And I am glad that I had the chance to bring John onto our podcast to share a little bit about uh, his experience and, his, and, and their ministry. There are tons of resources available on everything that John and I talked about. So be sure to jump over to the show notes to follow some of those links and um, take up the challenge to prayerfully consider how God might want to use you to be a part of His work where you are at. Well, I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact with your life. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.